0: Asserting that it's really difficult to make the level of transformation needed right now, that we don't look at our worldview. How do we develop our worldviews? How do we understand a relationship to the earth? How do we understand a relationship to each other? Otherwise, we're just sort of having stopgap measures or building a foundation upon polluted soil instead of really cleaning up the soil, metabolizing the soil, having you know good um, compost. We need to compost a lot of things to have a garden that's gonna grow good. And so we've gotta dig deep while we reach high all at the same time.
1: My guest today is the hopeful, inspiring Osprey Oriel Lake, an environmental activist with a commitment to strengthening women and indigenous people's leadership in remaking our world that for far too long has been based on extraction and exploitation if you've been hearing the term eco-anxiety or experiencing it yourself, you'll find some comfort here. In Osprey's new book, which is coming out soon, she offers guidance on how to navigate the thorny journey of climate justice and climate activism. We talk about how to remake our world in a way that works for everyone. And we also take a deep dive into rights of nature, an idea finally making its way into mainstream thinking and action. As founder of WeCan, an acronym for Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, Osprey works with leaders from around the world to move us all closer to a thriving earth filled with communities that support everyone. So please take a moment to push that subscribe button and then get ready for a true world changer, Osprey Oriel Lake. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Osprey Oriel Lake, a beautiful name. Um, It's wonderful to meet you and just thank you so much for for being on this podcast. Honestly, I can say it's truly an honor to have you here. You have so much wisdom to share and I'm I'm grateful for your joining us. Well, thank you so much for the invitation and all the beautiful work you're doing. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. So you are the founder and the executive director of WE CAN, which is one of my favorite uh, acronyms ever because it's so descriptive. And in both ways, it stands for Women's Earth and Climate Action Network. We can, uh, which you founded back in 2009, correct? Yes, exactly. yeah. So you were you were well ahead of the curve. Maybe not the very beginning, but definitely in terms of the true activism and especially the approach that you take. I think you're very very much ahead of the curve in in the work that you're doing. So can you start by just talking about WE-CAN and and why you formed it, what its mission is, and maybe some of your current activities so we can just get an idea of who you are and what you do? Sure, thank
0: you. And and I will say, I feel like I also stand on the shoulders of a lot of feminist movements and women organizers throughout history who have been really pushing an agenda around you know, understanding the relationship between caring for the earth and caring for women, which has a historical analysis of, um, you know, the violence against and the extractivism that has happened to our earth and to women. Um, mm. so, you know, that this comes, our organization comes out of a long history of, of struggles and uh, powerful women leaders. And uh, uh, I would say also uh, gender diverse leaders across the gender spectrum. Um and so mm-hmm. yeah, for me the journey really began. Um I I was uh doing artwork actually mm-hmm. before I started the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network. And um, you know, I, I've always been involved in activism, but when um it was during the Obama administration when there was the big climate the UN climate talks that happened every year was taking place sure. in Copenhagen. And you know, a lot of us uh, had a lot of high hopes that there would be really a deep Um, change and transformation how governments address the climate crisis and Mm. it it just didn't happen and I was walking in the redwoods near my home in northern California Mm. and I mean we all have different moments in our life and I had one of those moments where I just said I have to do everything I can for future generations for our planet." and I started doing a lot of research Um, and um, you know it's not that I exactly started out Thinking I would focus on women's leadership, but it turns out statistically, and I won't go into all of that for for uh, just to, to, to not drag everybody into a lot of uh, uh, nuance, but it is important to realize that statistically, women are leading the way when it comes to climate solutions, and it turns yeah. out that you actually cannot get to sustainability or to um, these new frameworks of how we're going to live in harmony with each other and the earth without women. And I'll mm-hmm. just give one stat just so people can really see that it's not just okay. it sounds right. It feels right. But right. Uh, uh, we did we really explored this one study of the uh, Women's Political Empowerment Index, um, and it shows uh, really how women are involved in social issues, how they're involved in their communities, obviously running for office. Mm-hmm. But when you look globally it turns out that just with a one unit increase, just one unit increase in the Women's power uh, Political Empowerment Index in a country, you get an 11.51 uh, degree uh, percent um, change in carbon emission reductions just by putting women in power is my point. And so when we look across whether it's you know, women in political office or women in social movements or environmental movements, you see this really profound change in success in reaching our goals around social, economic, and environmental justice. You look like you had a question.
1: so No, I just, its I was just so glad that you, brought, my face always is showing what I want to say or do, but um, I remember, and I, I highlighted that point um, in my questions about that, that very small change, a one one unit change in, in more women's leadership, resulting in over 11% drop in greenhouse gas emissions. I don't, I, I, that's what I wanted to ask you about is how is that even possible? That is so significant. And-
0: it, it is, it's so significant and almost no one's talking about it. Um, and so, you know, we're, we come from, you know, a, a a very a world that is um based on a lot of systemic oppression and part of that is around the patriarchy around misogyny and a a real you know unequal balance an equal balance around um you know the role of women and women's leadership and the value of women and so um we're really working in our organization to go back to the original question to uplift the role of women's leadership mm-hmm. um not only because it is the morally correct thing to do that we should be living in balance with each other, but correct. also because it turns out that when you put women in these leadership roles, they are producing better results around peacekeeping, around the environment, around social issues. Um, it's also true, very much at the ground level, uh, we've seen. You know, since we work a lot on environmental climate justice issues. You know, most of the food grown in the global south, between, you know, uh, 40 and 60% of all food production is done by women. Um, A lot of United Nations studies show that if you don't involve women in some of these water programs to conserve water and care for water communities, Mm. don't work because the Mm. women are collecting the water and managing the community in that way. Um, We know that when uh, women in leadership roles, Economies improve in uh, communities as well as a national and subnational level, um, and I could go on and on. Yeah, just uh, the enormous value of what women bring to the table, and the the tragedy is that they're not being heard or valued in the way that they need to be. So, as just to give you one example, because you know our our organization is dedicated to climate. Um, You know, every year we go to the United Nations Climate Talks, which we're preparing for right now to go to COP28, which is in Dubai. And we always bring a frontline women's delegation of indigenous Mm. women particularly. And uh, we see that, you know, here women are doing these incredible projects, doing enormous leadership. And when we did an evaluation from COP26, and I'm sure there's an evaluation coming out of COP27 last year, but just from COP26, Mm -hmm. Just just to give you one example, over uh, 70% of the talking time during the negotiations is being done by men, let alone the small amount of women leaders uh, that are leading out delegations. So all this to say we could pick so many different things that Mm -hmm. part of our role is to lift up women's leadership, to make sure women are in places of power, to ensure that women um, have access to decision-making um, and then, just to give a few examples about we can you know we work everywhere from you know this policy angle and interventions in policy spaces, but also we have a lot of on the ground projects because women are doing phenomenal things already, like <clears throat> we have a project in the dr congo where we 're reforesting lands that were just decimated through <clears throat> excuse me slash and burn techniques and also you know too much extraction, too much destruction of the land and um we've uh, now have 500 women planting trees, and we're reforesting this whole area called the Atombe Mm. Rainforest. And while we're also reforesting, which is um, bringing carbon sequestration, Mm -hmm. um, we're protecting 1.6 million acres of old growth forest because now the trees that we're growing, 25% of them are being used for communities. And 75 percent of all this damaged land. But because 25 percent of the trees are for human use, uh, the communities have stopped using the old growth, which means they're protected. Oh, huge. The which yeah. now is a huge climate solution. Right. This is just one of many, many yeah. things that we see women doing all the time to protect their communities and, and the earth
1: you know and i think um i really appreciate all that information cuz it's uh it's inspiring and and it gives one hope and also i think that a point that you brought out in the book and <clears throat> that people may know already is that women are um impacted more dramatically by the effects and the impacts of climate change so so it's not just that they're very effective when working on it but they want to be more effective they're being impacted they're the ones collecting the water and working the land as you said forty to eighty percent of women in the global south are are working the land so yes they're more they're, they're more at the beginning of the um, getting more of the impact of climate change issues and problems um, and I guess a question that one might ask if they were listening to this and and you know, maybe didn't know all the uh, story behind it is that you know, in and bringing balance to earth and bringing balance to our relationship with mother earth. Um, you're probably, I I'm, I'm guessing, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth that you're not looking to have women run at all, but you're looking for a balance there as well. Like it's so imbalanced as you were talked about with the, the COP conferences, conferences of the parties for people who haven't been keeping up on that, but the, the annual COP Meetings, which are representatives of governments around the world talking about climate change and, and looking for solutions. What did you say, 70% or 80% of the talking and leader is men?
0: 26, 70% of
1: the, the recorded uh, um, speaking time was men. Well, speaking time. Interesting. Okay. So you're just trying to bring it into balance. And Not like you're saying men aren't supposed to be involved in it, but just there's such a little still, rep- such a low representation still of women's voices in there. And, um, you know, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but okay. so, so you just, you said you just re- returned from um, the UN, a meeting in the UN as well. Yeah.
0: Um, so um, just to, so we have a lot of programs, everything from reforestation to forest protection in the Amazon, Uh, We do a lot of work also with divestment and getting uh, financial institutions to divest from fossil fuel projects and put their Mm -hmm. money in renewable energy. Uh, We do a lot of work around rights of nature. So we have a lot of different programs. But recently, um, every year in New York, during the United Nations General Assembly, um, there's also something called Climate Week where mm-hmm. there's an opportunity for governments and civil society and business and everybody to get ready for the upcoming cop, which always happens at the conference of parties at the end of the year mm-hmm. um and so um it was a very powerful time because um we were one of the you know supporting organizations to help organize. Um, a massive march that took place during the beginning of the UN General Assembly as all governments are meeting. Mm. And uh, we were expecting between 10, 10 and 20,000 people, but we had 75,000 people marching wow. the streets. And the focus was the march to end fossil fuels. Mm. because This has been a huge focus and it was a really powerful focus throughout Climate Week um, is that you know there's been so much discussion around Carbon emission reductions, which is what the Paris Climate Agreement is focused on, which is right. very important. But we mm-hmm. also need to talk about the supply end, which is really, you know, we have to stop fossil fuels, and it's a, you know, huge challenge how we're going to shift our economy off of fossil fuels. And the Secretary General, the UN Secretary General, called for a um, ambition summit, the Climate Ambition Summit, and so that was also held during Climate Week, mm-hmm. um, and. No, we didn't get the ambition we wanted, but it was also a really good time for uh, governments to be really called to order because, as an example, um, uh, the United States, Australia, um, China, a lot of these big polluting countries were not allowed to speak at this conference because they didn't meet the criteria of not expanding fossil fuels in their country.
1: Wait, so that- they're not allowed to speak if they don't reach that criteria? This That's particular- fascinating. Climate ambition summit. So oh, I see General did a very
0: good job. I really support his his here. Huh. And so, anyways, <laughs> this is all we we held a lot of sessions. Uh, we did a session on women ending the era of fossil fuels, women in the new economy. So, again, really working to intervene with, with different ideas and new stories, and what does the world that we want look like? So our were really working to stop a lot of bad things because we need to, we need to put out a lot right. Of right. we also need to intervene with new narratives and what does a care economy look like? And what are, you know, how do we reforest and how do people live in a different way where we don't look just at gross domestic product GDP as our own, right. like this, I mean, I'll just close this comment by saying that this is a time, you know, when we look at geopolitics and wars and what's going on with, um, you know, the climate crisis and environmental crisis in general and biodiversity loss, there's so much crack in the system right now that sort of how I look at it is, you know, is my heart is breaking, because, of course, it's very emotional and there's a lot of, of pain and grief and frustration and anger all built into this, is that when we come to this point when the system falters at this level, it's also an opportunity to step in where new mm. ideas that were not before politically possible or cultural or social mm-hmm. justice didn't have a space. This is a moment we can really intervene. And so we've got to just kind of keep pulling ourselves together yeah. to pull Seize it. and put forward this transformation, be collaborative and keep going forward because um, the, the crack is here. And how are we going to step into it to, to transform the world into what we want it to be, and, and the the world that we love and care for and know is possible.
1: Well, that was such, that's a perfect segue into what we want to talk about, is which is the book that you just wrote, because you talk so eloquently about all these issues, not just, it's not just about the core climate change itself, which, which we, of course, we have to fix. That's, that's not the argument amongst anyone serious anymore is, are we trying to, are we trying to at least mitigate the impacts of uh, climate change? But you are bringing up a complete societal restructuring of, of, of a sense. Um, and I don't know if that's how you would term it, but anyway, I just want to hold this book up because I literally, um, engrossed with this. It's, this is your new book. It's actually, it's not coming out till I think January 30th. It won't be on the. In people's hands, but it's in my hand. <laughs> um, the story is in our bones. How worldviews and climate justice can remake a world in crisis. It's a great cover. It's a great book. It's it's not a that that does it no justice. It's a phenomenal book. Phenomenal. And honestly, I um, you know I like a lot of books. This book is a is about saving the world in the in the most real way that one could describe in the most urgent way, in the most urgent manner. And yet the most beautiful manner, like we always like when there's a crisis, you come in with some crisis management that kind of maybe solves that one little problem but breaks everything else, Um, maybe puts duct tape on the overall problem and say, let's just, let's just force through this, uh, you know, let's shift from fossil fuels to Clean energy, and that's the end of the story. Well, it's just the beginning of the story. So, um, really want to dive into this book and all the different issues that you mentioned, all the different ways that we can, things that we can employ to build out of this with a more just world, with a more balanced world, with a more healed world. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. And your writing's incredible, by the way. I guess that's why I thought maybe you were a writer before you said you were in art originally, but you definitely have a, a beautiful uh, writing style as well. So it makes the content even easier to, to absorb. So why don't we just, um, uh, actually I'm gonna muddy the waters just a little bit because since this isn't out till January 30th, uh, you have another book, which I have not read yet, but uh, it's called Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. I haven't read it, but I, two of my favorite people in the world have written endorsements for it, which is uh, Joanna Macy and Brian Swim. And like they're just rock stars in my world. Um, can you just take a minute to talk with? Because I think that would be a great book to read while people are waiting for your new book to come out. Sure. I to
0: um, just a couple of things. I mean, one, uh, my new book is available free pre- for pre-order everywhere right right or now yes so, um, please do that thank you Yes, um, and um and so in uprisings for the earth i really focus on you know exactly that how to reconnect our modern culture with nature uh given these um separation from nature narratives that we have been born into culturally mm. so it deals a lot with that theme throughout um, and in my new book, um, uh, what I'm talking about with the story in, is in our bones, how worldviews and climate justice can remake our world in crisis. It's sort of like the next chapter, if you will, of okay. a analysis of, um, as, as you beautifully put, thank you for also your your very generous words, um, is that uh, we need a systemic approach And uh, that involves a couple of factors. One, I'm looking at how we need to deal with, you know, very short term immediate solutions because people are in crisis and particularly, Mm -hmm. you know, delving into also an analysis of uh, the inequities of our system. So um, when we look at root, root causes, we're looking at systems of colonization, of patriarchy, of racism and capitalism or extractive economies, um, even beyond capitalism, but including capitalism. And so I know those are a lot of isms and words, but it's also really important that we wrap our mind around what are these systems that have put us in this incredible poly crisis at every level, of yeah. you know, our very survival and our existence and our children's futures. Um, at the same time, we, we need to also take into account a climate justice framework and, you know, an intersectional lens, meaning that, you know, it's not impacting everyone the same and that needs to take into account. Um, and as you said, you know, if we're going to get into these solutions, we have to dig deep. Mm-hmm. And it's not a soundbite moment at all. Um, yeah. Get into this poly crisis um, and an existential crisis, you know, yesterday, this has been building for a very long time. And so we need to look at these root causes and how do we start dismantling them transforming them, but also building, you know, what it is that we do want. And so that's like the long-term vision. And um, so I, I really got into, uh, you know, just to give a, a few examples of, um, I think it's, it's important to name that as we build this new world and we look at these new economies, um, you know, whether we're looking at gross national happiness that comes out of Bhutan or I do a review of feminist economics that has like the care economy which is things around you know how women have been uh working that really feeds feeds our current economy by doing tons of unpaid or undervalued labor whether that's caring for our families or uh caring for the sick or the elderly there's this huge amount of labor going on that's mm-hmm. unaccounted for that we need to account for it counts we count <laughs> and so uh You know, how do we reframe our economy where care and the earth and human life is valued, not just, you know, material growth? All of these things take time to sort of unpack how do we actually transform these systems and and a lot of models about what can be done um, in its place. And so the book deals both with like some immediate solution level, but it also takes us upstream, upstream to. Who are we in this story? Who am I in the story of the Mm -hmm. universe? Which is equally important because I start the book by really sharing with people how do we actually come up with a governance system, an economic system, Mm -hmm. or a social system not based on white supremacy if we don't even know where we are? So, what is the origin of us in the larger story of the earth in our cosmologies? And so. I am asserting that it's really difficult to make the level of transformation needed right now Mm -hmm. if we don't look at our worldview. How do we develop our worldviews? How do we understand a relationship to the earth? How do we understand a relationship to each other? Otherwise, we're just sort of having stopgap measures or building a foundation upon polluted soil instead of really cleaning up the soil, metabolizing the soil, having, you know, good um, compost. We need to compost a lot of things to Mm -hmm. have a garden that's going to grow good. And so we've got to dig deep while we reach high all at the same
1: time. Yeah, I like that analogy with the soil. But I would, uh, to play a devil's advocate, which I'm sure you've heard this argument many a day that uh, we're looking at climate change breathing down our throat as an existential threat. And these worldview changes, which we'll get into a little bit more in more depth, because I think they're critically important. But do they not? Is there not an argument to be made that, uh, which is what I'd referred to earlier, that we just literally have to put every ounce of energy we have into coming up with clean energy solutions, replacing fossil fuels, re, you know, renewing the soil, regenerating the soil, and some of the things that we absolutely know are going to work. Um, and then and then tackle, I know your argument will be, but I just think it's a it's an argument worth making that we don't have time to do all those things and, and not everybody wants to do all those things, but at least everybody wants to do wants to fix climate change, everybody who's got a rational thought, I, I'm gonna say. Um but not everybody wants to go into these other issues that, that or or even agrees that those are necessary. I happen to agree with you, but certainly there's a lot of people who will not. And can we all get on one page with at least climate change first and then fix the other things around it? Has that argument been made and And if so, what is your response to that yeah
0: no it's a it's a great point. I love that you brought it up and well, first of all, I think we live uh culturally and politically in an ecosystem, meaning that I don't think we all have to get everywhere all at once all the time mm-hmm. so I'm taking care of my corner of the world. Someone else is taking care of their corner of the world. And it all can add up to a solution. So that's Mm. the first thing is when we get away from sort of this pyramid, one solution fits all patriarchal concepts of the leader or the one. And, you know, this is the way that helps us. So we don't have to have a answer for everybody to get everybody on board we can have a system of ideas just like in nature when you go into the forest yeah Every being has a different function they're not all doing the same thing and that's what makes the biodiversity of that forest healthy so that's the first thing like we don't have to do all of it we need to do huge our-
1: point yep
0: yeah okay so that's point one yeah. the second point is yes part of the ecosystem I'm working on says, actually, we do need to do these things at the same time. And I'll give you a practical reason why, which is, okay, let's just start with, um, uh, you had mentioned we need to get off of fossil fuels and get into clean energy. Of course, yes, I'm on board with that. But it turns out, as we all know, that if you're going to move to renewable energy and electrifying the world, it means Mm -hmm. you have to have all of these batteries, uh, these right. EV cars, et cetera, right. which means mining for minerals so right. to be able to do that.
1: On a finite yeah. planet. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so if we simply substitute not extracting for fossil fuels and jump over into extracting for mining, mm-hmm. uh, we could even get in a worse situation because right. it still means deforestation, pollution of waters, et cetera. And Child so labor. <laughs> we don't change our thinking about, like, as an example, not consuming as much changing our economic models that demand that these quarterly returns come and just at you know any you know, cost bar just exactly mm-hmm. yeah. and we're not really changing anything, changing ourselves or how we're living with each other and nature, and mm-hmm. so we're just extracting something else which will destroy the planet and mm-hmm. life right so that's point one a two on that, and then I also mm-hmm. would add I think a lens around you know which i mentioned earlier around you know these inequities so where is this extraction going on is mostly in indigenous and black and brown communities so there's a whole lens to know we can't just go after climate change alone because right. the way the system is right now is not is based on white supremacy and the global north and the wealthier countries profiting from the global mm-hmm and extracting from the global south. And a lot of the people in island nations or in, in less wealthy countries, I don't like to use the word poor because it kind of indicates like people are poor when they might be spiritually very rich. Oh my goodness, that's for sure. <laughs> um, less wealthy countries, you know, who have contributed the least to the climate crisis and put the less carbon emissions yes. in the atmosphere, they're suffering more. So if we just resolve, you know, electrifying the global north, and leave everybody else behind, that is not a solution. That is not climate justice. That is not caring right. for people and planet. So do we need to delve into these issues of colonization and racism and misogyny while we're solving the climate crisis? Yes, because also when we look at the root causes, it's from that. So as an example, if we say no more white supremacy, no more racism, no more colonization, where is this mining? And where is this falsified extraction to take place? Because it's not happening in white communities. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you begin to realize that everything's connected, you realize, oh, we couldn't be extracting because there would be no place to extract because wealthy
1: communities- Not in my in backyard. Country, yeah. not allow it. Yeah. So
0: we need to like level the playing field and truly have a earth for all, a wind for all. And so we do need to have these analyses.
1: Boy, those are three very powerful points that you made. And um I think you you kind of summed up the, the entire message of your book with just those points because and you've taken away any argument, I think, against not incorporating the the entire the worldview, looking at worldviews, looking at so much more, looking at the place of women, at the place of um that white supremacy is playing. All of those they bring up so much argument in this country they bring up so much uh we're already here and it just heightens that so i do have that fear but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't take it on just because it's it's gonna you know sometimes you have to drive a point even more just to to get it to come to a head and and i think perhaps you know this is where we're at because we are talking about the survival of the planet and if that doesn't get people's attention then probably nothing else will um even that doesn't seem to at some point um you said you wrote this, how did the dominant culture arrive at this paradoxical moment when we have healthy and equitable pathways to address our greatest problems, but the central worldview is fixated on cataclysmic exploits? Um, as a person who's been working in the Middle East for 30 years now, myself, um, I, I this is front and center in my mind, what's going on. Around, if if we think this is all about Israelis and Palestinians, it's not. It's all about oil, and it's all about many other things. It doesn't appear to be that way, but that is definitely what's behind much of this fighting. Um, So I think you're you're. So I'm I'm. I feel like I'm in an emotional crisis, as most of the world is right now with this situation that's going on in the Middle East. But you can't separate any of these things from the bigger worldview that you're that you're talking about with with things like um, uh, oil. So can you talk then, let's, can we move into the idea about worldviews and why it's important to address, and maybe let's look at them specifically. Like for example, you talk about human dominion over nature. Um, how is that worldview affecting what we're doing on a day-to-day basis and affecting the outcomes that we're faced with now?
0: Yes, and and also yeah, just to express also my heartbreak also with you about the Middle East and um, just the tragedy of of what is taking place. Um, and I do think it's all connected. I think it is all connected um, because uh, when we're looking at worldview, we're looking at how you know in the the example you gave of dominion over nature and our separation from nature. I think that. What's important to discuss here is
1: um, I did turn that off. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, that's all um, right. I don't but, know if it's yours or mine. Uh, Sometimes they sneak through. Yes. You took it. The we importance. Need,
0: yeah, no, I know. I just wanted to yeah. collect thoughts for a moment because um, there's so much grief attached to this conversation. I just wanted to take a pause and also because we're talking about trauma. We're mm. talking about years of these systems I've, I was sharing and where they come from. And so this brings me back to colonization and patriarchy. And the fact that, you know, sometimes when you're fish in water, as they say, you're swimming in something, it's really hard to see, see it. And that's why I wanted to just type, write this book and just pause and take a look and say, "All right, um w- even if you don't consider yourself religious, we're growing up in a spiritual or religious framework in which you know and i'm not a biblical scholar i'm not against the bible it's really not about that. I'm just trying to analyze what uh messages are being conveyed to us that then impact." Our everyday life, because worldviews are based on stories. Worldviews are based on philosophy. Worldviews are based on our understanding of the world and how it came into being, mm. and taught implicitly or explicitly to us every single day. So, as an example, um, in the dominant society, and I wouldn't say this for indigenous people or local communities close to the ground, you know, the view is that you know the world is filled with resources to serve humans. And, you know, even in the Bible, it states that, you know, we're here to have dominion over nature. Right. And so this permeate permeates society. And so instead of having a reciprocal relationship with nature, we 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 think it's our right to go into some territory and just dig it up and dig up Mother Earth and take what we need because we're at the top of the food chain, if you will, And, and we're the important factor here, instead of us being relatives with the trees and relatives with the plants and animals and relatives that are living here in an equal ecosystem. And so that worldview impacts mm.
2: everything.
0: You don't think that you're here to be a life enhancer, to live in relationship with your living relatives in an animate, alive world. Mm. That completely flips the script that you're mm. here to be served and your slave is nature to to serve your every need and so just consume and exploit away um and and this is a huge belief that we could just consume endlessly and there's just no problem and there's no teaching built into our right. systems or our belief systems about reciprocity and you know if you take you need to give back and what is the exchange that we have for nature. And of mm. course, as you know from my book, I highlight a great deal indigenous peoples and indigenous peoples wisdom because they have such more of an intact relationship with the natural world. Um, and just to put that in context, 80% of all the biodiversity left on earth right now is in the lands and hands of indigenous peoples and territories. That was an amazing point. Their world view and understanding of reciprocity with nature and that we're here to 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 be um you know enhancers to the places we live versus destroyers of the places we live, so that's a primary worldview that has to shift
1: that that fact eighty percent can you repeat that the statistic because I read it and I was it it shook me even though I know that the Amazon and and so much of the natural world resides in the hands of indigenous people who have not yet been pushed out of their land. Can you say that statistic again because it's it it says I think it says everything. It it tells us the answer. Yeah,
0: yeah, 80%, 80% of all the biodiversity left. That means the forests, water, you know, everything that has to do with nature and biodiversity and the plants and animals in those forests and natural territories is cared for and in the hands and lands of indigenous mm. peoples. And so this is why I also mm-hmm. stressed in my book but also in our advocacy at we can that we must protect indigenous rights and indigenous sovereignty and we should be sitting in my opinion at the feet of indigenous peoples and learning we need to have indigenous peoples in the halls of power we need to have indigenous peoples sitting in every decision-making circle possible because of their knowledge and worldview about how to live in harmony with the natural world, which we have lost in our modern society in the dominant culture. And so it is yeah. a time to center indigenous peoples and their wisdom. Um, and unfortunately, you know that's not what's taking place. Through colonization, more lands are being taken, more uh, rights of indigenous peoples are being ignored. And that must stop. And it's one of the things that when we go to these climate talks every year, we bring Indigenous women to speak for themselves, to negotiate for themselves, to meet with government leaders, to demand respect for their sovereignty and their
1: rights and their knowledge. I'm glad you brought that up, because I don't think that people are fully aware that rights are continued to be taken. You know, we're, we're sort of egocentric in our country. Well, I guess everyone is in their own country. but. You know, we think, well, that happened a long time ago here. That happened long before I was born and my parents or grandparents were born that we took this land from from the indigenous people. But. It's continuing to happen around the world. It's happening definitely in the Amazon rainforest right now as they're fighting for their life, for the life of the rainforest and for the life of the people. It is continuing to happen around the world. One other, and before you go on, I just wanted to highlight something you, like you you talk about the the coastal Miwok, is that the people? Coastal Miwok. Mm -hmm. Miwok people, and that's whose land you personally say that you live on. You bring up the point in there that people should find out who live whose land are you living on um and i thought i've never heard anyone actually say that before like i cuz it's sort of a vague knowledge like i know that in colorado there's a and ute and and you know some shoshone but um some of those are american names some of those are names that um well I don't know who lives like on and that where I live where I'm sitting right now I don't know that and I feel like it's very powerful to have that information and I just wanted to I'll put a um link on the show notes I saw NPR had a link that you could get where you could click on and it shows you you put in your zip code or your town and it tells you and and it's a powerful powerful exercise because it shows you exactly the tribes who lived in your city at least or your area very close to where you live What blew my mind about that, and I think it will many people, if they look at the map, it'll come up with a map of what is now the United States and show who lived there, what tribes, what peoples lived in these lands before us. And I don't know about you, but growing up, I thought, oh, well, there's some people over here in that part of the country and some people were living there, but it was pretty sparse and there weren't that many people here. Like Even though I just don't, when you see the map, of how many peoples lived completely from sea to sea, north to south, in what is now the United States. It's mind-boggling. Hadn't heard of any of them, frankly. And there's a whole knowledge that even though we see all these movies and read all these books and think we have all this knowledge about Indigenous people, even in our own country, I don't think we know anything. I don't think we know anything at all. And And to not know that and to not have their knowledge and not to not be able to benefit from even interacting with indigenous people anymore is a, it's such a loss for all of us, for everybody. Got a little (laughs) carried away there, but yeah.
0: (laughs) No, I completely agree. And I think it's, um, again, why, you know, again, looking at the short-term and long-term approach in the short-term, this is why I was saying in my book, people can get off the map that you suggested and look and find out whose lands are on but it, that's a good beginning point, And I super support that. And I think that's something that really needs to happen. And then it can be a deepening relationship of sure. whose lands, whose territories you're on and start bringing that into your conversation, which is why I always introduce that I'm from, I'm Coast I'm, I'm a visitor here. And to acknowledge that um, I'm on stolen land and to be bold and courageous enough to say, we are on stolen land. And mm-hmm. there has not been remedy or reparations for that fact and um so there's land acknowledgement land you know where we live and the acknowledgement of the land we're on and recognizing the indigenous peoples by name and knowing who they are and learning about them there's history books we can study Mm -hmm. but also I think very importantly to realize it's not the past it's the present there are many indigenous peoples in the country of course not you know uh not as one you know white settlers first came here, of course not, after all of the Indian right. wars and disease and everything else, and the encroachment on their territories and lands and ways of life. But there's lots of indigenous leaders all across the country who are working on amazing projects, uh, You know, from food sovereignty and food security, to climate issues, to indigenous rights, protecting forests, protecting their lands, trying to stop pipelines, stop these fossil fuel projects, Some of the most courageous and powerful leaders in the climate justice movement are Indigenous peoples and have been from the get go. Mm -hmm. You know, the Keystone XL pipeline that we won Mm -hmm. some years ago was led by Indigenous peoples. And to this day, uh, Enbridge is line three, line five, Indigenous peoples front and center. Yeah. And so I think we need to also just awaken, of course, people are probably familiar with what happened at Standing Rock with the Dakota Access Pipeline. Huge. Yeah. And so I think we need to recognize the current presence of Indigenous peoples and how do we respect their territories, their land, learn from their movements and learn from their guidance on their territories and find ways to support their leadership. So I think that's also yeah. something get is is learning who the Indigenous leaders are in our communities and supporting their activities and wishes.
1: One time I went to hear a speaker at at the local library, Denver Public Library. Uh, I think it's Sherman Alexie, I believe is his name, and I've read him in a long time. This was several years ago, but I went to hear him speak, and this library was filled with hundreds of people and I may have been one of the only ones there who was not an indigenous Native, American, indigenous Native American person. And I had never in my life seen that many indigenous people in my city. I had no idea. I had no idea that anyone even lived around here, except for very rarely you see somebody who's who's Native American. Um, and it was really a beautiful. I, I was overwhelmed by it. And in a beautiful way, and so there are ways that you can seek out, but you have to literally seek it out because we are living amidst and among indigenous people and and know very little about them or know or interact very little with them directly, so I think we have to actually seek that out um what about separation from a living earth? This is another worldview that you talk about. And maybe, and you've touched on that somewhat already. So I don't know if you want to take a few more minutes to maybe delve into that worldview a little more.
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, just to sort of move the conversation um, into some things that we haven't talked about. I mean, I think a couple of yeah. things around um, that is that, um, First and foremost, I think we need to learn from indigenous peoples, as as we've just been discussing, and and realize how serious that is, and that indigenous people are a climate solution. They are actually a solution. And then I think some of the internal journey around the separation from nature is that, um, you know, people need to spend more time in nature. That's a very simple, Mm -hmm. uh, you know. Simple but overlooked. Yeah. Um, we actually really need to get ourselves situated with the plants and the animals and the trees and gardening and walking in the forest and get connected at a very body visceral level. Mm. We're animals here in this living, breathing, gorgeous animate reality that we need to become a part of and look at the stars at night and get our bodies and minds yes. and spirits to be connected to this vibrant, extraordinary fact of the web of life that we are part and particle of, and that we are nature, we're not separate from nature. And that's something that we need to feel in our bodies as well as on the mind and heart. So I think that's a key factor. And then also, like, how are we using language? And how are we looking at our narratives around uh, our relationship to the natural world as living relatives? And I think something that was part of the process of colonization for all people. And I'm talking about
2: World large,
0: arcs of history is this idea that, you know, again, through um, patriarchy and patriarchal religious texts that, you know, somehow there was, you know, God lives up someplace away from nature and then there is no longer mm. a living earth. And that we start having this abstract notion of religion and abstract notion of spirituality and abstract notion of life and the web of life and that I think has become very dangerous and has played out in many many ways including Mm -hmm. the sense that we're orphans from this living planet and we need Mm -hmm. to heal from that trauma and reconnect ourselves to the umbilicus of mother earth Mm -hmm. as children of the earth and not have it be some sort of new age statement, but a reality, a living reality in our bodies and minds. And mm. to understand that this was part of the, you know, oppressive systems of control uh, to, to have people begin to believe that we're not part of nature and having institutions, institu- patriarchal institutions and religions step in to play that role, God as we mm. will, and mm-hmm. step into the role of that innate connection. And so this is why it's so uh good to have an intersectional lens to understand that colonization and patriarchy are are deeply connected because it's disconnecting us from our innate understanding of our authority with Mother Earth, our own spiritual relationship to the land, our relationship to each other, and having outside systems come in and play that role has not been a good venture
1: for humanity. Let's just leave yeah. it at that. For, for humanity or for anything that humanity impacts. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's. I think that's a, a good segue into talking about rights of nature because su- surprisingly, a lot of people haven't heard that term even. We're still using the, you know, just to piggyback on what you just said, we think of uh Nature as a resource, that word resource has been pivotal, pivotal, and responsible for breaking that connection, I think, because it's no longer a friend or it's no longer us. this tree is no longer us it's no longer it's now something we can use and make money from so um this rights of nature movement has really shifted that in a new direction, and for those who haven't heard about it, do you want to just speak um to what it means and and how it's working, maybe in a couple of countries.
0: Sure. So, um, part of our programming at the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network um, is around rights of nature, and then I'm also on the executive committee of the Global Alliance for Rights of Nature, and these ah. are you can look up online. Yeah, uh, it's really an exciting movement. In fact, the oh, UN Secretary so yes. General uh, earlier this year said, "Earth jurisprudence," which is jurisprudence is a form of law or philosophy of law is the one of the fastest growing environmental movements going on in the world right now. And rights of nature is a part of that. Mm-hmm. And what this is, is that in our current modern uh, law systems, um, nature cannot be represented in a court of law because it doesn't have rights. It's viewed as property, meaning again, going back to this dominion over nature piece mm-hmm. that we're talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. So- nature. So we view nature as property and as such, it isn't, doesn't have rights. So rivers or forests or mountains cannot be represented in our current legal frameworks. Mm -hmm. And what's beautiful about rights of nature is that it actually goes back to ancient indigenous knowledge. The roots of rights of nature go back to indigenous Uh wisdoms, which is no, you know, nature has every right to be here as much as humans. Mm -hmm. And so um, it is a way of sort of looking Um, at reframing our legal frameworks and kind of turning them on their head and saying, no, the river has rights, the forest Mm -hmm. has rights and it has the rights to thrive and be healthy as much as a human. So I sort of like to look at it when we look at the UN, uh, excuse me, uh, the Universal Declaration on the Rights of Humans that has been Mm -hmm. uh, declared by the United Nations, that we also need a Universal Declaration on the Rights of Mother Earth, on the Rights of Nature, Mm -hmm. and so that we can represent ecosystems in a court of law and right now it it what's exciting is that this isn't just an idea who has come it's it's being implemented so in 2008 Ecuador became the first country in the world to put rights of nature in their institu- in their constitution yeah. and um there has been several cases now one uh, a river and I think there's actually been two rivers now that have used rights of nature legislation to say, no, we're not going to harm this river because it mm-hmm. would harm certain critters or the river itself and its natural integrity.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: local communities across the United States have used, obviously, it's not at a national level in the United States, but local communities over yeah. three of them now have employed rights of nature in their communities and asserted them and uh deployed them in their communities to stop fracking projects um all over the world it's it's really exploding it we is- were just, I was just on the call with some other colleagues and like over thirty countries either are implementing or about to implement rights of nature laws, whether it's at the subnational or local level um it's it's this understanding and people um realizing that the current system of law is completely incapable of dealing with this moment. Sort of like at the beginning of our talk, I was saying, you know, these systems are faltering. And so it's an opportunity now to step in with these new ideas like rights of nature that actually have the politics and legal frameworks to be able to address the current urgency and the lack of um, systemic analysis that we currently have in our legal and political frameworks and so rights of nature is is really quite exciting um i could go yeah. on, and on. It's of my favorite topic, it,
1: yeah it's one of my favorite topics too and i've been a at the number of communities around the world who have invoked this and it, i find it to be one of the most exciting areas happening in the world right now one of the one of the most exciting developments you know and even if it comes from a place of Uh, survival for ourselves that we realize that nature, we don't survive if nature doesn't survive. I mean, that's what it's gonna take to get the whole world on board is that, you know, eventually it has to come down to, I won't survive if nature doesn't survive. So wherever you are on that, you know, pendulum, I guess, or on that trajectory of you just wanna help nature or you wanna help nature because it'll help you and help your children, it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter as long as we're all protecting nature you know, however we get there. And I think this is a beautiful way to get there and exciting that because not only will it help like in in courts of law, but it shows a change in worldview, if you will. It shows that people are shifting to a place that nobody even heard of uh, a river having rights before a few years ago. And now, you know, yeah, rivers have rights. Communities no, I, have I, rights. Yeah, I
0: completely agree with you. I think that you know, there are times that law pushes pushes culture and culture pushes law
2: mm. in terms
0: of developing ideas. Yeah. And um, just to share a beautiful story, I was um, in um, uh, New Zealand several years back on a fact-finding mission around rights of nature. And hmm. um, because there's different, we call it rights of nature, but some people call it rights of Mother Earth. There's also sort of a, a branch of it that is giving nature personhood. And I was so mm-hmm. deeply moved by the Maori people uh, who um, won after a hundred years, I mean, my goodness, the endurance of indigenous leadership to um, grant the Whanganui River, a sacred river in New Zealand mm. rights and and personhood because they see the river as their relative, as their living oh. relative. And okay. so they were able to come to a settlement finally, an agreement with the New Zealand government where there's now custodians of the, the Wanganui River, some from uh, the country level and some from Indigenous leadership, to be guardians of the Wanganui River as a relative. And so no harm can come to that relative. And again, I think it's that worldview of seeing the world mm-hmm. as our relative in relation mm-hmm. these relationships with the other living beings in the web of life. Right, right. And um, so when I was uh-huh. there, um, I uh, was very honored to be taken to the Whanganui River by um, some um, indigenous women elders. And we were there um, at the water and making offerings to the water. And they shared with me um, one of the sayings that they have, which is, I am the river and the river is me. Mm. I am the river and the river is me. And that just really touched me to, to, you know, say these words that help um,
1: create connectivity in our Mm. language, talk about life. It's, it's a, it's a worldview shift, but it's also a personal shift. Like you said, when you go into nature and you really do spend time in nature and you really do look at trees and you really you don't just walk through, but you really do uh, try a profound connection, it does change you. And using those words that you said with these with these indigenous elder women, um that that impacted you. I mean, what we do, what we say, how we move, how we think, it all adds up to having a new connection that that we just Maybe weren't taught, I mean, to be fair, none of us were taught that we weren't taught the way indigenous people were taught you know we didn't we weren't taught by our but now we can now that we're learning, we can teach our children and our grandchildren and and that's a that's a wonderful legacy to carry on and you certainly have a wonderful legacy that you're that you're developing carrying on um which actually kind of makes me want to ask you um what what does you've really devoted yourself to something very big very um world changing future changing uh i don't think you're doing it for your legacy but nevertheless it would be legacy making what has it done for you as a human being like how do you feel differently having maybe moved from another field into this field and going Mm -hmm. all in how's your life different and your experience of it like
0: Well, it's interesting because uh thank you for the question. I have to really think about it, but for me the the feeling I get is that um everything i've done in my life has been the same song. It has just taken different uh expressions of that same song um, mm-hmm. because you know, I used to do bronze sculpture art, and mm-hmm. I also have like, wilderness trips um when I was putting myself through college. And, um, you know, then did did this art for work for a while. And then I have the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network. And then these books I've written. Um, for me, they all are coming from the same impulse, which is I'm here, how I see it, to to serve the world, to serve the web of life, to serve Mother Earth and the communities and people that I love, which is, you know, humanity, and also to really fight for justice. You know, justice has been a really big part of my life. And so for me, this is why climate justice is key, like lift all boats. It can't just be white people creating places in nature and everyone else loses. Like there can't be sacrificed people, sacrifice zones. There can't be more gazas. There can't be more you know, hostages being taken out of countries and these traumas that go on and on and on. Mm. There can't be reservations for indigenous peoples. We need to give land back. There needs to be reparations, rematriation of the land. There needs to be, you know, true justice, which means we have to unpack these things inside of ourselves. As you said, it's very personal journey. So how has it impacted me is it, it's a journey, Of all the mistakes I've made, oh, my goodness, Mm -hmm. all the mistakes I've made in my learning process to look at my own ancestry, to to look at my own behaviors, Mm -hmm. to look at, um, you know, uh, learning about these oppressions and histories that are painful to look at. And how am I going to to change my own thinking and how do I expand my thinking and how do I become more wise? How do I heal my own trauma? How do I not beat myself up as I'm learning, you know, all of these things come into play. But Mm. the key is for me, you know, it's been one song around how do we heal the earth? How do we live in right relationship with each other and mother earth and all the different expressions that that can, can Mm. take. And I would just share with listeners, like it's, as I shared earlier, it's an ecosystem. Everyone doesn't need to do it the same way. Um, And But also, I want to say it's not all of the above, because we don't want to repeat mistakes from the past. I don't want a future of white supremacy. I don't want a future of injustice. I don't want false solutions to the climate crisis. I really want us to not mine the heck out of the earth on our way to solving the climate crisis. We need really holistic solutions that are deeply thought out, that deeply care for everyone and care for all the other beautiful living relatives that are not humans on this planet. And Mm. so it's gonna take a deep dive, but Mm. everyone doesn't have to take the deep dive. We can all do our part. And I think that's the key thing is how do we do our part and find what lights us up, what excites us, and dig in there. We don't Mm -hmm. have to do everything, but we can do our part. And I think this moment of urgency when we're really limited on time, The biggest thing I would say is people really need to roll up their sleeves and get involved. No one can be on the sidelines anymore. We all need to speak out. We all need to take action and find that place where you can do that in your community um, to do that in. And so, you know, going back to your question, you know like for me, that's the change is that I'm really aware that I need to engage, 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 change and grow, be open, keep learning, sharing. And that's collaboratively how we're going to get through this very small keyhole into yeah. a different future. Wow. I,
1: I want to not say another word because that, that feels like a mic drop moment because I feel like you said every single thing and wrap that up together. I was going to ask you what people can do, where people can jump in. And I think what you said is exactly right. We jump in where we can, where we're drawn, where we're called. And and I think also we need to be brave. I think we this is not time to be postponing anything or, or or feel that we're not up to the task. You know, we have to be brave as individuals because we really are called to show up right now and whatever that looks like. And you're showing up fully. If people show up a little bit to whatever level they can that's enough. That's, that's their, as Lynn Twist always says, you know, we all have a role to play and some of them are small roles and some of them are, are really big roles and we just have to find what what's ours to do. Um, I want to hold this up again because I don't, I can't imagine anybody not wanting to read this book story is in our bones. Um, it's amazing. And I, I'm going to follow you with we can and um, everything else that you're doing. I thank you so much for, for all the, all your life that you're devoting to this and and for sharing it with us it really makes um it helps me just if nobody else is listening it has helped me so so much so thank you so much for that and and i think we'll have few people listening too so take well, thank care you and uh,
0: for inviting me and for this really great discussion and onward we just keep going onward, onward. and thank you for uh, creating these shows where people can share ideas and and doing your part by by helping visualize mm. these issues, so thank you so much for what you're doing.
1: Thank you. We'll we'll
0: stay we'll stay in touch. Okay.
1: Take care.